Welcome to the EIS Navigator. I'm your host, Brian Moretta. The time for environmental and ESG investment finally seems to have come, but how do you measure the impact? Today, we have a double bill of guests, Max Middleton and Jake Boonwell Povey from Bala Capital, who've looked at the various frameworks and depths and how we might apply these to the small companies in the EIS space. It's an important discussion for today's times. If you're enjoying the podcast, don't forget you can subscribe on all good podcast services, including Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, and Spotify. If you have any suggestions for further topics or just want to chat with us, then you can email us at inquiries at harmonandco.com. Without any further ado, enjoy this episode. So today on the podcast, we have something a little bit different in that we have two guests. So I'd like to welcome Max Middleton and Jake Wimwell Povey who are investment manager and investment director, respectively, at Vala Capital. Welcome to the podcast. Hi, Brian. Thanks for that, and good to be on. Hi, Brian. Yeah, great to be here. So we'll start with learning a little bit about you. So we'll maybe start with Max, about how you became an EIS fund sure, manager. Sure, can do. Um, it's not, not a particularly exciting, uh, exciting story, but basically I was looking at uh, job prospects coming out of the London School of Economics, where I did my master's degree some years back, and uh, considering some of the usual well-trodden paths um, in banking and consulting that LSE grads tend to go on to and came across an opportunity with an early stage VC now called EMV Capital, who were looking at very early stage opportunities in IP intensive businesses broadly and clean tech and industrial efficiency. Um, So I joined there as an analyst and got to work on a lot of interesting deals ranging from robotics to building automation to nanomaterials and actually helped launch their first EIS fund toward the end of my tenure, um, which was my first trial by fire step into the EIS world. And so I left the MBA back in 2018 um, to help launch the Ingenious Infrastructure Team's first venture-focused EIS fund, where we successfully raised and deployed just over $20 million into high-growth opportunities in the energy built environment and resource efficiency spaces. And now I've come over to Vala to help set up and manage the Vala Sustainable Growth EIS Fund. Excellent. And how about you, Jake? So it's a slightly convoluted path, but I'm a chartered accountant by training. And once completing that training, went into kind of corporate finance lead advisory side of the accounting world. So essentially investment banking, but in an accounting firm. From there, I started my own business back in 2015. I was running that for five years before stepping away earlier this year and really taking a change of direction and just saying that to myself that sustainability was and is, I believe, the challenge of our time and the climate crisis. So I have since then devoted myself to that. So I'm not a pure play investor, but I bring a bit of the kind of accounting, corporate finance and entrepreneurial side of it to add to what's been to date a relatively limited kind of angel investment history in the sustainability space, mainly in a bit in fintech. Excellent. So as Max just mentioned, the two of you are involved in launching a new sustainable EIS and you have done a lot of work in terms of looking at ESG awareness and sort of the challenges of measurement. Maybe you'd like to just sort of quickly frame what the problem there is. For sure, and I might, I might just set out at the outset that we, we're um, calling ourselves a sustainability-focused investor versus ESG-focused investor. And obviously there's a lot of overlap there, which we can, and a few differences which we can get into uh, later. But um, I guess around the ESG side, uh, ESG has obviously gotten a lot of attention recently, and, and for good reason, ESG funds are on track to account for 
larger portion of the European fund universe than non-ESG funds by 2025, um, and ESG funds generally outperformed their peers throughout the market turbulence during the uh, lockdown period earlier this year. Um, and I think beyond that, the pandemic has kind of broadly given us as a society a moment to pause and reflect on what's important and to acknowledge the interdependencies connect all of this. There's a greater awareness that's emerging, even if the letters ESG are not directly pegged to that sentiment. And there are also um, some challenges in how, how you actually uh, incorporate that into investment processes and into business processes at the uh, kind of more mature levels of capital formation. Some of the key challenges are around the consensus of what ESG metrics and frameworks are, are most relevant and where, where there are frameworks in place, there tends to be fairly weak correlation between different firms measuring or, or grading ESG scores for corporations. And, and there's also the, the issue that under ESG, there is obviously a three very different pillars, which can be difficult to conflate into, into one single score. Yeah, I, th- I think that seems to be a challenge in that social and governance don't seem necessarily directly correlated. As you say, they, they overlap. Do you think it's right that you've got this sort of environmental, social and governance aspects are all grouped together? I think when you look at broadly what people are trying to incorporate here when they bring ESG analysis into their corporate analysis, is they're trying to understand whether these enterprises are just for profit or have a purpose beyond profit. And so I think when you look at that broad framework of the E, the S and the G, what they're trying to assess there is, is there purpose here beyond that? And that obviously is a multifaceted question because of the impact organizations have on stakeholders, whether it's employees, whether it's customers, suppliers, you know, society at large. So by definition, really, because, you know, enterprise human endeavor is so multifaceted, it would probably be remiss if ESG or a framework of that sort didn't cover that multifaceted nature. And I think whilst the the individual indicators and metrics might be very different, typically what you'll find is a culture at the heart of a business that either adheres to the concept that business is or can be a force for good for its employees, for its customers, for its suppliers, for its stakeholders and the environment, or whether it's a pure profit-making endeavor. And and so when you think about it like that, typically firms that are scoring well, and this isn't a golden rule, but but there are teams, there are management teams, there are shareholders who are saying, we need to perform and we can perform well across all of these different indicators. So it's less of a correlation, but it's more to say there's typically a driver, there's typically an ethos that that drives adherence to, to all of those kind of different metrics. It seems to me that touches on one of the issues in the sector in that you've got what I term generally ESG compliance versus ESG impact. And we see, particularly in the quoting market, a lot of move towards ESG compliance, which is existing businesses saying, oh, yeah, well, we've got good governance, which, I mean, frankly, a lot of good quote companies already have because they've got full boards We've got we're doing some sort of environmental thing. You know, we're sitting in our in our bank and we're getting renewable energy, but actually they're not really changing the fundamental thing about what the business does. Whereas you then have the impact business, which you were describing there, Jake, as a sort of the, the ESG things at the core of what they do. Yeah, and I think this is probably somewhere we can we can jump in and explain that we're not 
describing ourselves as an ESG fund because ESG has become tied up with a whole lot of frameworks and reporting standards um, mm-hmm. associated with later stages of capital formation, where you're right, um, in some cases, it might seem like a box-ticking exercise. There's no shame in that. You can't manage what you don't measure. So it's an important development, and it's important for us to keep an eye on this because it's indicative of a broader shift in thinking in the financial sector and in markets, and because early-stage businesses today should keep this in mind. But we're not convinced that ESG in its current uh, shifting incarnation is the most appropriate tool for measuring startups. So we talk about sustainability, which certainly overlaps, um, but is not necessarily neatly tracked to the various ESG frameworks as they currently exist. Instead, we start with the premise that you know we're currently facing the largest challenge our species has come up against. Uh, the world is getting hotter and more crowded while social inequalities persist or in many cases grow. Leaving any one of these issues unresolved does not lead to a sustainable outcome for the world at large. Mm-hmm. We think that the collective survival instinct has begun to kick in um, and will grow, and, and this is reflected in the new interest in uh, ESGs. And businesses that align themselves with this push will be at an advantage to those that don't. And there are a lot of reasons for this, from customer preferences and perceptions to improve talent acquisition and retention, preferred access to capital at all stages. And we think that it is a good place to be betting on as companies that are aligned with this in a mission sense. So we refer to the UN's SDGs, uh, Sustainable Development Goals, as our North Star. We're not trying to reinvent the wheel here. Um, And in our investment thesis, I've attempted to boil these down to three themes, which we believe capture the breadth of the mission while allowing us to focus on areas where there are venture-grade opportunities. Um, We call those technology for planetary health sustainable commerce and consumption, and democratizing access Mm -hmm. to societal needs. And we're not looking for companies um, necessarily that are trying to optimize their ESG scores. Rather, we're looking for founders and businesses actively trying to build a more sustainable future. And because of this, they will inevitably, down the line, scoring well on, on ESG metrics. And we can help them build in those processes from the early stages to track their performance against those metrics as well as their financial performance. Yeah. So so what do you think are the challenges when it comes to measuring, you know, whether it's environmental or other issues? I think there's two broad challenges. In a way, they're probably inverse to each other. When you're a huge corporation, it's a mammoth undertaking to go and look at your carbon footprint. And there's obviously more to it than carbon. You know, there's everything from water use, other pollutants, land use, etc. Plus, then you can consider obviously the social and governance. But let's stick to your question around kind of the environmental side of things. And the other thing, obviously, with the environment is when you are that interchange and point between kind of humanity and the planet at large, you know, the planet is a hugely complex natural system. So it's not just that we can say, all right, well, we do this. And that has a single outcome. You know, there are unintended consequences and often long feedback cycles. But when we think of large companies, that's broadly the issue. It's how do you do that? But obviously, there's some big consultancies that make a huge amount of money helping huge companies manage, assess their supply chains. We're obviously talking about investing in small companies. And they have the opposite problem, which is they are so small trying to ask these companies that are bold and mission-driven founders who have got the bit between their teeth trying to change the world to now take a step back from building something that's really powerful for the customer, which we know, you know, if we were to do a smell test on it and a sniff test, that we know that's a good thing. 
for them to say, well, well, can you go measure that to the nth degree? You're stopping them from doing business. And that's the antithesis, I suppose, of the lean startup. To give you an example, let's say we have a zero waste business mm-hmm. and you were to say, well, that's great. You know, you're zero waste. Let's have a look into that. This seems very sensible. But if you were to then say, well, can you go and prove that that's zero waste across your entire supply chain from everything from like the screws that go in boxes or whatever, suddenly you're going down that compliance route. And so we've got to take a common sense approach to that. Mm-hmm. And as I said, it's not too difficult to look at that and say, well, look, that's, this seems sensible. However, mm-hmm. to give you one example, there is one major challenge, I think, when we're looking at this from a startup lens. One example that probably encapsulates that quite well is probably the CO2 versus plastic issue that we have, which is to say we can move away from plastics, but typically when we do so, we then have to use things like recyclable aluminium or recyclable glass. And when you start using those products, they're much heavier. And so if you were to develop, say, a zero-waste solution for using those types of products and suddenly have a much bigger carbon footprint because it's heavier to move some of those things. And so it's things like that when you then suddenly have to start saying, well, we need to do a little bit of digging here because we can't just sit back and say, well, this looks pretty good. And we can do some high-level analysis. We can do some qualitative analysis. When it comes to things like that, we've really got to ask ourselves, actually, there might be unintended consequences here which are more grave than the initial intended sustainability outcome. So that's the kind of broad brush challenge, but there are frameworks that we can use. There is a combination of qualitative and quantitative that we can look at, especially when it comes to the environmental side of things. But I would just summarize by saying, we do have to always keep an eye on the risks around those outcomes being achieved, not least of all because startups are risky businesses, but also the unintended consequences that those outcomes, seemingly good outcomes might bring with them. Yeah. So you mentioned that about frameworks. I know you've identified or are working with three different ones, which is the Impact Management Project Framework, the Sustainable Accounting Standard Board, and sort of B Corp things. And for listeners who are interested, we will put links to all these in the show notes. Can you briefly describe maybe what each of these is and does and why they're different or why we need different frameworks? Yeah. So the first thing I would say is, I have a lot of sympathy for people who are thinking, yet another framework, how many of these things are there? This is a minefield, because in reality it is. And as Max mentioned earlier, there is a huge amount of debate and discussion going on around developing ESG taxonomy and frameworks, you know, all the way up to the kind of the EU commission level. So we have chosen a number of frameworks. And we may choose different ones in time, but for now we think they do the job and they do the job very well. And To really think about how we use the frameworks, we have to broadly think of sustainability in two ways. We think of the sustainability outcomes that our investees are trying to achieve, which could be, for example, reducing the carbon footprint of any given product compared to the peers or its competitors already in the market. Or it could be things like improving biodiversity or lowering waste, lowering farming inputs, etc. And that's the outcome that that company is seeking to achieve by virtue of delivering its products and services to customers. But then we have a second question, which is, how sustainable is the enterprise itself? And by that, we mean, how efficient is it from a carbon point of view? Is it using a huge amount of water? Is it doing what it can to make sure that its office premises are sustainable, low carbon, low energy, etc.? Is it paying its employees fairly? So there are two broad questions there. And the framework's 
broadly mapped to that, but often they can be used across both kind of buckets. So as you mentioned, we use the Sustainability Accounting Standards Board, which helps us to identify non-financial but sustainability-orientated metrics we can work with investees with to help them identify, measure, and hopefully manage and improve their sustainability outcomes. So, for example, one of those standards might be, if you're a food and beverage business, water taken from, I mean, this isn't quite the wording, but water taken from, say, plentiful sources. In the negative, mm-hmm. it's actually phrased as water taken from areas under water strain. And this is probably quite a US-centric measurement with that regard. But if what we're trying to do is we're trying to make sure that the water that we use is coming from sustainable sources, bearing in mind, you know, water scarcity is projected to be a huge issue over the coming decades, mm-hmm. then what we want to do is we want to identify that metric and we want to improve it. And what that broadly gives us the ability to do is to quantify the sustainability outcomes and also to hold our investment management teams to account as any good investor should and say let's work with you to improve the performance here we then use the b corp so the b corporation assessment which is a great and quite accessible broad and comprehensive sustainability framework that asks about 270 questions around how it looks at everything from customers suppliers employees stakeholders etc and that is that point around making sure enterprises themselves are sustainable and and that's probably what you think of more as an esg score is the b corp perhaps making sure a company is more of an impact company or is that something where it's merely we tick the box in compliance terms I mean, they probably wouldn't like me saying it's a compliance framework. It is quite an onerous undertaking. So for a company, to take a step back a second, there's two elements to this. There is a B Corp certification. Mm-hmm. And to achieve that, a company has to go through a pretty rigorous six-month process by which you have to answer those 270 questions and you have to provide evidence that demonstrates you've actually done what you said you've done. And that is verified by the B Corporation, which gives it an element of credibility. And there are a huge number of B Corps all around the globe. And some of the biggest high-profile ones are probably people like Innocent Drinks, for example. And that is the compliance element to it. But it does make the company focus on what are their outcomes and how are they achieving those. But mm-hmm. the other element that's useful for it, which is part of the B Corporation uh, certification, is the B Corp score that you get, the, out, the score from what they call the B Impact Assessment. And in a nutshell, that's a score out of 200 and you need to be over 80 to be a B Corp. But what you can do is, certainly what we can do as an investor is we can invest in those businesses and we don't have a hurdle you know we don't say you have to be 80 for us to invest into you because mm-hmm. as i mentioned you might be a two founders in a garage sort of thing doing amazing things but you haven't got time to go and do all this stuff so it's not a deal breaker for us but we will invest in those businesses take them through that b corp process or at least the assessment process and when we get that score we will work with them to try and augment it and increase it over time which will help us to demonstrate and understand how they're performing on a pretty broad comprehensive framework and yeah, score. i think i think you're right mm-hmm. so so that's how that works i was just gonna say i think you're right brian to kind of ask about the is this compliance or uh, measuring impact drive with a B Corp certification or, or with any of the frameworks. And the, I guess the obvious starting point is you can go through the exercise and just say, okay, now I'm a B Corp, job done. But what we would um, you know, encourage as investors and what you know, I think teams that really care about this would want to do is to see if they can improve their, um, their scores over time. So it's a tool that certainly doesn't guarantee more sustainable outcomes. But again, you can't manage and you can't improve what you're not measuring. Mm-hmm. 
Yeah, yeah. It, 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 I think it's a challenge, as you referred to earlier, what you don't measure doesn't get managed very well. And I think that's been one of the challenges in this area where you referred to the smell test earlier. And it's it's very easy, I think, in this area to say, oh, yeah, they're good people doing good things. But you're, as you also pointed out, there's cases where it's hard to judge. So I think, Jake, you were about to mention the impact management project framework before I yeah. <laughs> went yeah, down I the was. B Corp panel. Yeah, and that's probably starting, well, ending at the beginning here. The impact management framework is a both a qualitative and a quantitative framework that helps us with our diligence assessments, which essentially helps us to frame impact and what are the impact outcomes that this entity is trying to achieve. And it does that through what it calls its five dimensions of impact, which I won't go into here, but if you look at the show notes and look at the impact management framework website, it sets them out very neatly and with nice graphics to help you really get your head around them. But that helps us to the other point of focusing on the sustainability outcomes to help us really understand what they're trying to deliver to whom, how much of an impact is that likely to have and what are the risks around them delivering that? You know, Are they likely to achieve that? And that helps mm-hmm. us as an investor to then essentially bring the sustainability outcomes into a twin focus alongside the financial outcomes so that as an investor, we can deliver both equity growth and and investment returns, but also in doing so, not just do no harm, which is probably the ESG framework point of view of negative screening and making sure you're not investing in bad companies. We want to deliver a financial return for our investors whilst investing in companies that are going to help us transition to a much more sustainable world and, and deliver much more sustainable products and outcomes. Yeah. Yeah. I think when I looked at my impression was it's a little bit like the RAG review and risk frameworks that probably a lot of people have already seen. It's that sort of thing. Yeah. And obviously, these are multiple frameworks we've talked about here. They Mm -hmm. don't necessarily map to each other perfectly. And as investment managers here, we are still paid by our investors here to use our insight and our experience to meld all these together and meld that with a financial analysis, as well as you know, an intuition around how do we think this business is going to perform over time to bring all that together. So there is, whilst the frameworks are extremely helpful, there are just ways really to help us frame our thinking as investment professionals. Do you think the plethora of frameworks is a strength or a weakness of the area at the moment? Because it seems to me it's potentially a little bit confusing for people who are not involved. And in some sense, they are competing. Do we need to see two or three standards kind of emerging above the rest? I can appreciate it's confusing. I would say, though, that once you get to know them, you appreciate they are looking at different things. Mm-hmm. And so if you were to combine them, I question whether that would be more effective or what you'd actually be doing in a way is kind of muzzling the frameworks to an extent and lessening their effectiveness. However, I think as we're touching on before with the compliance element, what we need to make sure though is that this slowly just becomes good business sense rather than an extremely onerous compliance exercise. Mm -hmm. So I think broadly we do need a common sense element to this. And I think we also need at this stage flexibility because there are certainly some frameworks which are competing. And there are now more and more frameworks which are collaborating. And and I think we just need to be able to talk sensibly about outcomes because ultimately as investors in the space and ultimately the founders that we deal with who are very purpose-driven, we want to see good outcomes. And a framework is merely a way to help us appraise that and measure that. But mm-hmm. we shouldn't be putting the cart before the horse here and saying, well, 
doesn't fit in the framework, so we're going to have to pass. It's beholden on us to make sure that we are doing those outcomes justice and applying professional skepticism, obviously, in the process. But by looking at those businesses and saying, do we believe in these founders? Do we believe in these management teams? Do we believe in the pain points that they are trying to solve? And if they were to solve them in this way, do we think those outcomes are going to be good for people, the planet, and deliver the investors a profit? Yeah. So you did mention earlier about the challenge of introducing these into small companies. You've got what, in some sense, a big framework. Sustainable Accounting Standards Board has, I think, 70 different industry frameworks within it. And it's very easy to overwhelm a small company. But at the same time, these are probably things that small companies can't completely ignore. How do you strike the balance between introducing them to a company without overwhelming it? Yeah, I think that's part of the balance that we're trying to strike here and what Jake's been talking about, that a lot of these standards can be, even after spending a few months looking at them, still it's pretty confusing and difficult to match up with each other or figure out what your starting point should be. So as the outset, I think it's a challenge of kind of explaining to the founders if they're not already aligned with the purpose of incorporating these frameworks and the value that it can drive further down the road. And actually, when we've had these conversations with our existing portfolio companies and potential investees from the pipeline, been met with quite a bit of enthusiasm, both because I think founders, or at least the ones that are <laughs> that are particularly forward-looking, um, which are the ones we want to be working with, recognize this is something that you can't afford not to be um, thinking about or have a strategy around if you want to be doing business in the next five or 10 years. Um, so you asked earlier about a smell test. I think part of a smell test for us is, are the founders that we're talking with enthusiastic about meeting this challenge of incorporating sustainability metric tracking and processes into their business practices And are they willing to take the steps working collaboratively with us to figure out what are some sensible high impact targets that they can drive their business towards in addition to the obvious financial ones? Yeah. Do you think that this will be something where in five years time, which is sort of time horizon we're probably looking at for companies you're investing in now, you're going to want them to have some sort of framework in place, not just superficially, but in some sort of detail, because by the time we arrive there, other companies will be looking for that framework. It'll become a standard thing and you won't be able to sell a company unless it's got some sort of ESG framework yeah, I, in I place. Yeah, I would say that's, I mean, uh, saying you wouldn't be able to sell it, maybe that's a bit strong, but I think any company that hasn't built that into their processes at that point will be at a disadvantage when going to raise further capital or when looking for acquirers because, well, they will either have the challenge of trying to do a quick and dirty approach to getting those measurements in place At that point, which will never be as good as incorporating it from day one, it just makes sense to start thinking about this and building those today. In terms of what the landscape will look like at that point, um, I think as we've alluded to previously, the multitude of ESG frameworks out there means that it's actually pretty tricky to say, you know, this is exactly how you need to be accounting for these things. And this is the framework you need to be applying for year five, because it's a shifting landscape. We don't know where it will all um, shake out. But what we do know is that ESG or sustainability in some carnation will be important and you need to have a strategy for tracking key metrics today. And you need to be ready to adapt to what the expectations of investors and your business partners uh, shift to um, over the next five years. Yeah, it certainly does seem an interesting question in terms of right now, ESG's time does seem to have actually come. The, the The conversations I'm seeing in certainly in EIS over the last year, 18 months, and, and in the wider investment industry. 
And I'm, I'm a bit curious because I've been seeing this discussion on and off for about 20 odd years. I remember going to talks 20 years ago about SRI. It's coming and it's coming and it's always been coming. And I think I've got a two-part question in the sense of why is the SG finally actually arriving? And the second question is, is it really actually arriving or is this just a bubble and for whatever reason it's having a time and in five years' time, do you think there's a chance people will have moved on to something else? So I think it's time is coming as both governments and citizens really start to swing around the climate crisis. That hasn't you know, happened overnight. That's been slowly building. And obviously, environmental mm-hmm. activism has been going on since the 1970s. But I think finally, when you look at everything from people like Greta Thunberg and Extinction Rebellion, you look at things like David Attenborough's you know, Blue Planet and the impact that had on people's views on plastic. And then you look at what I would call the evidence, but I know a lot of people are kind of anti-science at the moment, but I think it's pretty clear when you look at things like the raging wildfires in Australia and California, you look at the retreat of glaciers, etc. you look at the rising sea levels, you can see that this is a huge issue and it's going to be a huge issue. And the IPCC reports for example, bring a huge amount, an absolutely colossal amount of scientific modelling and assessment to that to predict that the writing is on the wall here unless we change. And that is translating through to government. And that's now trickling down. And you can see that both voluntarily when certainly large investment managers, people like the Climate Action 100, for example, who have got trillions under management and who are signing up to this. But also you can then look at broader voluntary industry-wide whether it's finance or other industries as well, saying, why well, this is a problem, we need to take this seriously. Because the world absolutely, you know, as Greta Thunberg says, to quote her, you know, you need to act as if your house is on fire, because it is. Mm-hmm. This is a problem that I think if you were to speak to most environmental activists on it or scientists, they'd say we are already too late. And to Max's point earlier about the UN SDGs being our North Star, When we look at sustainable development in its broadest sense, the reason it's in our North Star and it's not just about the environmentalism is because the delivery of or the achievement of those sustainable development goals are interdependent. So, for example, if we want to solve the climate crisis, we have to give thought to climate justice and the impact that is going to have on typically the poor and the global south. And I'm not saying that's something that we in our relatively small EIS fund can target but we can do what we can which is to say well let's have a look at what we can do in the uk and even there sustainability is still interdependent so for example we need a workforce that is vibrant and has equal access to opportunities whether that be from kind of social status wealth gender race etc as well as we need to make sure that we're looking at the environmental impact whether that be co2 in the atmosphere or whether that be something much closer to home like water pollution in rivers and the surrounding fish stocks in our coastal waters. So in terms of, back to the question, has it had its time? I think the huge environmental crisis that we're facing is presenting itself now in a much more acute detail and people are really starting to feel what was previously seen as a rather an intangible and far away problem. And in the process of facing up to that, I think we are accepting the interdependence of sustainability at large being the, our ability to exist both with the planet, but also to exist more harmoniously with each other and in society. Yeah, I'm a little bit optimistic when I see what the EU is doing. Well, I don't think Joe Biden's a perfect president. At least he actually believes in 
the environmental problems that the previous president or the current president. Baby steps for my country. (laughs) (laughs) So I I think there's some grounds for optimism about these sort of things. One of the problems that I see, and maybe this is more at at the big corporate and little corporate level, is the issue of greenwashing, where you see companies to some extent manipulating. You know, when I see BP is going to be a green company and or whatever, or I heard arms manufacturers trying to persuade themselves to be incorporated in ESG indices. Do you think these sort of things could undermine what's going on? I think, you know, virtue signaling or greenwashing is kind of an inevitability. It will always exist to some extent, but I think that over the long term, consumers, investors, market actors in general have a pretty good nose for authenticity. And at some point, as frameworks improve, as we start to settle on standards, as people get more educated, it's going to be easier to actually do the right thing (laughs) than to try to skirt around the issue and risk getting caught with an insincere publicity campaign. I also think that just some of the um, the, the drivers from a consumer level and from a regulatory perspective will push us in the right direction. So while I think that it's right to call out insincere greenwashing gestures and to be critical, I, I don't think that it's a uh, a cause for concern or something that risks undermining the entire sustainability or, or ESG movement to any extent. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I, I think I was more worried about perhaps undermining some of the standards where if you've got a B Corp, say, certification for a company that, I don't know, you know, an oil production company, and I don't want to pick on oil people in particular, but it, it does seem that that could undermine the B Corp certification per se. Maybe I'm just worrying about things. No, I think, I, think it's, I think it's right to jump to jump on that point. I think concerns like your own, and I'm, I'm sure are shared with other market actors who are committed to a more sustainable future, will win the conversation. Maybe that's me being a bit <laughs> too, too optimistic, but I think that insincerity has a, a short duration. Mm-hmm. Okay, I, <laughs> I definitely hope you're right. So what I'd like to do now is move on to our standard questions. So with two people, I'm happy for you each to give different answers if you wish. In the classic venture capital triumvirate of market, product, and management, which do you think is the most important? I can go first. So obviously, all three are key, but if I have to choose only one, I would have to say management. Market dynamics and product preferences can change quite quickly, as as, as 2020 has shown us. But uh, a good management team can react and adapt to whatever is thrown at them. Um, that's not to say they'll always succeed, but... I would rather back a, a great management team than a good product or a promising market. And finding new good people is possible, but it can be very difficult and expensive to swap in new management. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and no, I'd, I'd agree with Max there. It's um, the management team can pivot, they can change, uh, tweak the product, they can change markets. But I think it's, as you say, it's difficult to again change the management team, but stick with the other two. Mm-hmm. Okay. Tell us about a time you failed and what you learned from it. Jake, do you want to go first here? <laughs> uh, yeah, sure. So I had the good grace of failing plenty of times at my startup. And the, what startup was that? So it's a company called Goji, and mm-hmm. where it's a fintech platform that provides asset management services to alternative investments. So, and that's both in the UK and abroad. And when we say alternatives, we mean non-listed alternatives. But that was a hugely complex undertaking in that you know alternative assets are typically alternative for a reason <laughs> and so they are difficult to trade and buy and subscribe into 
one of the things we failed at was trying to launch into the advisor community. And when I say failed, yeah, we, we ended up closing down the, the product. But I think the learning from that really was just to constantly self-reflect. And then self-awareness is absolutely key because whilst data can sometimes appear to be going one way or another times, you're never quite sure whether something's a green shoot that you need to double down on or whether actually this is just a temporary blip. So I think it's just bringing that self-awareness so that you can really react calmly to the data and look beyond the data. I'm a big believer in having intuition and gut feeling on some of these things and, and it's not fundamentally we're dealing with human beings here. So we need to marry the two and I think that's where certainly I failed there. Before joining Vala, there was a deal I was leading alongside two strategic co-investors that I worked on for probably about six months and, and fairly intensively for the last two of those. That fell apart literally a week before the target signing date because of a dispute between founders. Uh, that was very, very painful for everybody involved, obviously. But through that, I learned that founder dynamics are critical to early stage ventures. And you need to interrogate this particularly um, and diligence beyond just the qualifications of the individuals. The team chemistry is critical and making sure you have a good grasp of that should be in place before proceeding. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I, I know one or two managers have found out the hard way that startups basically put a huge strain on yeah. any co-working relationship. So it's hardly surprising that if things aren't perfect and that the sort of stresses can drive people apart a little too easily, unfortunately. Yeah, and it can be particularly the case where you have large founder teams and the roles have not necessarily been clearly defined between those managers um, or if they are not entirely aligned on their vision for the future of the business. Mm-hmm. So the EIS industry in which we work is far from perfect. What would you like to change about it? I'll take a first go. So I, I think changes towards renewed emphasis on risk to capital conditions were appropriate and brought EIS back in line with its original purpose, probably probably a bit overdue. <laughs> Some of the restrictions that remain in place, and, and here I'm thinking around preference shares perhaps in particular, can make it difficult for EIS investors to support companies through later stage rounds where it's more common to use these tools and where co-investors might um, expect preference shares to be in place. And I think some flexibility here um, could be helpful for bridging the so-called funding gap. Okay. Yeah, so for me, unsurprisingly, I'd like something around sustainability to be brought in. And I think this scope scope for, in the same way the government's got knowledge-intensive EIS, I'd like them to see a kind of sustainable sustainability-intensive or environmental-intensive EIS as well, which makes it even more lucrative for investors to go and invest in businesses that are trying to change and trying to solve the, the challenge of our time. Because... I think the figure is from the UN is something like we need 2.4 trillion pounds a year invested over the next 10 years. And I appreciate, you know, EIS isn't going to go, you know, going to make that up. But but it'd be good to not only get additional capital into the space, but also to engage investors around the cause. And I'd like to, I was going to say, I'd like to go back and steal Jake's answer if that's okay. (laughs) That's okay. Well, the government is promising to build back better and greener. So maybe we should send a copy of this podcast to the Chancellor and see what he thinks. Amen. So lockdown has been fantastic for my reading. Would you like to suggest a book that you like and would recommend to people? Jake, do you want to go first? Yeah, sure. So the book I keep coming back to was a book called Donut Economics by an economist called Kate Raworth. And 
there's two things. Number one, it questions our infatuation with GDP growth, which is drummed into all of us subliminally and quite consciously as the the holy grail that we're chasing here. And the question it asks is, but why? Because if we're chasing growth for growth's sake, but we're leading lower quality lives in a lower equality society, and we're doing more damage to the planet, then, then why are we chasing that growth? And it's an interesting question. And I know even an economist called Joseph Stilgitz, who was the original kind of author of GDP and, and certainly a lot of that work, he's come out saying, why are we factuating on this? So the argument definitely has merit. But in, in a nutshell, to keep this brief, the, the inner ring of that donor is the safe space for humanity, which talks around things like, you know, so, some social justice issues and equality. And the outer ring of the donor is what it calls its planetary boundaries, which are things like water use and environmental use, biodiversity, etc. And it essentially says we ought to, rather than chase growth, we ought to try and optimize to make sure that we are within those two limits of the donor and creating a safe space for society whilst living within our planetary boundaries. Yeah, it, it's making quite a stir, actually, if you dig into it. So I would recommend that to anyone. I have read it, and I might suggest a compliment on the GDP topic because there's a recent book by Marianne Mazzucato, mm. yeah. which yeah. whose name escapes me, and she's written about how the content of what goes in and what doesn't go into GDP has been kind of manipulated. That doesn't really reflect what actually happens in society as well as it might. So there's yeah. a compliment to that one. Sure. Great work as well, hasn't she? So yeah. when I when I joined uh, Vala, our uh, CEO and founder, uh, Jasper, sent me a copy of a book called Let My People Go Surfing by Yvonne Chunad, who is the Patagonia founder, uh, which is a, a business memoir mm-hmm. that talks about some of the lessons he learned and the philosophy he tried to build into his career and into Patagonia. As a personal story, it's fascinating. I'm a bit partial here as a rock climber and outdoor enthusiast myself. But there are also um, some lessons he draws out, including the merits of commitment to quality and authenticity that are, are relevant to any founder or investor today. And of course, proving that great business and purpose uh, do not need to be at odds. Mm-hmm. I have done some walking climbing myself, so I'm well aware that the Patagonia story <laughs> one, even even within a community that you think would be very environmentally aware, it stands out as someone who has really yeah. created a successful business economically and yeah. kept a social aspect and was, to it, or was environmental far aspect the, uh, to it, the curve on it very impressive. In, his, in his thinking as well. Absolutely, because it's, it's yeah. 30 or 40 years old, that business. So what do you wish you knew when you started in the ESG area that you know I now? Can, uh, I can take a first crack at this. So I still consider myself to be pretty early in the, um, the learning curve for ESG and sustainability. But I guess one thing I'd say uh, to someone who was just starting to take a look at it, if you're feeling intimidated because it seems like a bit of a mess, don't worry. That's because it is a bit of a mess. <laughs> um, but uh, you shouldn't let that shouldn't let uh, that discourage you. What's becoming obvious is that we're still pretty close to the starting line of a transition that will define the next decade and likely beyond. And there's tremendous room for talented uh, individuals and motivated individuals and teams to get involved. And you know, there's no better time to start than now. Mm-hmm. And, and for me, it would have been to be fair what we touched on earlier, which is an understanding of all the different frameworks in which wants to navigate how they all work, rather than I suppose chasing myself down a few rabbit holes on them mm-hmm. okay well hopefully if anyone's thinking about that we can give them a few pointers in the show notes with all the frameworks if anyone wants to find out more about what you're doing at valor where should they go 
and they should go to valacap.com. Feel free to connect with Jake or myself on LinkedIn or uh, email us. I'm max at valacap.com and uh, Jake is jake at valacap.com. Nice and easy emails. Excellent. So thank you very much, both of you, for coming on to the podcast today. Really appreciate you talking a lot about environmental stuff and frameworks. Thank you. Thanks, Brian. It's been a blast. So we hope you enjoyed that. If you want to find out more, the show notes will be available at hardmanco.com forward slash podcast. If you like what you heard, you can give us a review with lots of stars on iTunes. You can subscribe to this through iTunes, Spotify, and all good podcast players. If you want to give us feedback or find out more about what we're doing, then you can send us an email at inquiries at harmonandco.com. Thanks very much for listening and hope to hear from you soon.